podcast. I am Dr. David Henry, and I'm the editor of the Journal of Community and Supportive Oncology, whose online site is jcso-online.com. And I'm delighted today to be talking with Dr. Ken Anderson, who is at Dana-Farber in Boston and is the Kraft Family Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School and an international thought leader and investigator in myeloma. So, Ken, welcome to this podcast. I thought for our listeners what we might do to elaborate on the field of myeloma, which has been one of the hottest areas in oncology in terms of drug approvals and different ways to treat and sometimes mix and match that confuses us in practice, to maybe pose a couple cases that get from simple to a little more complicated and see how you would proceed. So the first one, we thought we'd pose a 56-year-old healthy man who has IgG kappa myeloma, and his workup shows he has multiple lytic bone lesions, his normal renal function, normal calcium, and he's transplant eligible by other health issues. So, uh, and I didn't even mention cytogenetics, so I'll let, leave that up to you if that changes. How would you develop or pose some options for this man's treatment to begin with? Surely. So, firstly, it's important to start out by saying that we've, uh, in myeloma, have many new classes of drugs and many new opportunities to to choose from to treat this uh, gentleman. As you all know, we have proteasome inhibitors, the first generation, bortezomib, then carfilzomib and exazomib. We have the immunomodulatory drugs, thalidomide, and then now lenalidomide and pomalidomide. We have an HDAC inhibitor approved called tanabinostat, and we have two monoclonal antibodies, elituzumab and daratumumab approved. These uh, classes of medicines uh, have uh, made uh, it possible for 20 different FDA approvals in the last 10 to 15 years. And all of these agents, having been tested in advanced myeloma, have moved now towards the initial management. So in this person, um, he is 50 years old. He otherwise has uh, adequate um, liver, heart, lung, and kidney function, so he would be eligible for uh, high-dose therapy and stem cell transplantation. In terms of initial management, um, there are uh, many options. What we do strongly recommend is that triplet therapy be utilized initially. The most common triplets would be lenalidomide, bortezomib, dexamethasone, or cyclophosphamide, bortezomib, dexamethasone, so-called RVD and CYBOR-D, respectively. If this gentleman had had um, neuropathy, perhaps kyprolis, the second-generation proteasome inhibitor with lenalidomide, dexamethasone could have been used. Um, why do we use these? Honestly, the extent and frequency of response with these triplets is nearly universal overall response rate, three-quarters very good partial, and half complete responses, including minimal residual disease negative responses. So this gentleman we would recommend would be treated with either RVD or CYBOR-D for several cycles to maximal response. He would have autologous stem cells collected, and it's still a standard of care to proceed to high-dose melphalan and a single uh, stem cell transplantation. Now, the cytogenetics are important. If this gentleman has standard risk multiple myeloma, then lenalidomide maintenance would be given 
post-transplant and is now FDA approved for this purpose as it can prolong both progression-free and most importantly, even overall survival. Standard risk cytogenetics might, for example, include hyperdiploidy or translocation 1114. On the other hand, if his myeloma was high risk and characterized, for example, by 17P deletion, we would carry out the same induction transplantation, but we would alter the maintenance to incorporate a proteasome inhibitor. So lenalidomide and bortezomib, for example, could be combined. Early data shows that using combined maintenance therapy with lenalidomide and bortezomib, for example, can uh, overcome the early relapses that are characteristic of high-risk disease. Now, because of the extent and frequency of response to combination novel therapies, we have undertaken, together with our French colleagues, a clinical trial of RVD in newly diagnosed patients such as this gentleman, followed by stem cell collection in all patients, and then a randomization early to high-dose therapy, melphalan and autologous stem cell transplantation, followed by lenalidomide maintenance, or in the other cohort, harvesting of stem cells, additional RVD, and then maintenance with lenalidomide, saving the stem cell transplant for later. The French portion of this trial has been reported in the New England Journal of Medicine earlier in 2017, and it showed that patients who received RVD, went to high-dose malphalan and stem cell transplant, and had one year of lenalidomide maintenance, had an approximately one-year progression-free survival advantage without an overall survival advantage compared to patients who received RVD and lenalidomide maintenance, saving the transplant for later. I would hasten to add that in this trial, lenalidomide maintenance was only given for one year, and patients in the RVD only or RVD and transplant arms of this trial both relapsed uh, after the lenalidomide maintenance was discontinued. In the American portion of this trial, it's identical. That is, RVD induction is being given. All patients have a stem cell transplant. Half of the patients then go to high-dose melphalan and the stem cell transplant early, and half of them have the transplant only later at the time of relapse. A major difference is, however, that in the RVD-only or RVD and transplant cohorts, patients receive lenalidomide maintenance until progression. That trial has been ongoing since 2009 and is still ongoing which tells us that patients in both arms, the RVD only, as well as the RVD and transplant arms, are both doing quite well. There's a recent trial that I'll mention called the STAMINA trial in the United States where all patients had undergone a single high-dose therapy and transplant, and then there was a randomization to lenalidomide maintenance only in one cohort a randomization to consolidation with RVD post-transplant followed by lenalidomide maintenance in the second cohort, or a randomization to a second high-dose melphalan 
stem cell transplant followed by lenalidomide maintenance in the th third cohort. I mention this because the outcome in all of those three cohorts was identical. I believe this tells us strongly that the case for high-dose therapy and stem cell transplantation twice, or so-called tandem transplant, is no longer uh, a major option in multiple myeloma. For now, however, the standard of care would be in this gentleman to undergo induction therapy with triplet novel combination treatment, then stem cells would be collected, and high-dose therapy stem cell transplant would be done, followed by either lenalidomide maintenance for standard disease or lenalidomide and bortezomib maintenance for high-risk disease. Some patients who you and I see as new patients will ask, can we delay transplantation? Yeah. And yeah. we do really not know the answer to that question until these trials that I've mentioned totally read out. Um, in my clinical practice, if patients have had a major response to their induction therapy and have stem cells harvested, we can then offer them the opportunity to utilize maintenance therapy and save the transplant as a potential option for later when myeloma relapses. So then this is, so that's really beautifully outlined. This would then be in 2017 off protocol while some data is pending, reasonable to get a deep induction response, collect stem cells, have a discussion with patient, and then consider high-dose therapy or not. Yes, I think it's reasonable to discuss it. Um, I do think we need to be open and honest with patients and that the um, standard of care really does remain transplant, uh, that you in particular incorporate novel treatments before the transplant and novel treatments as maintenance after the transplant. And the happy news is that the uh, outcome, especially for patients who have standard risk myeloma, is at least a decade or longer now uh, progression-free survival. So it's quite a, an optimistic picture. Um, I think the um, data in terms of transplant being needed or not uh, will come within the next several years. For now, um, it is a standard of care to use one high-dose malflan and stem cell transplant in this setting. One thing I will add uh, in our discussion with patients, besides the opportunity to harvest stem cells and think about whether uh, one needs to do transplant early on or not, is the issue of toxicity as well. High-dose malflan as by itself uh, does have a small but real secondary incidence of cancer, myelodysplasia, or leukemia. If one uses lenalidomide maintenance after malphalan transplantation treatment, that risk of secondary cancer is slightly increased. In my experience, if they have achieved a complete response with chemotherapy only, I think it's not unreasonable to offer early transplant and be clear that that's the standard of care. But the alternative to be offered is the maintenance with lenalidomide, 
knowing that once the stem cells are harvested, transplantation can be an option for relapsed myeloma. And we have many other options available as well. Um, time will tell in terms of the ongoing randomized trials uh, as to whether transplant uh, remains uh, central to our treatment paradigm. I think that's exactly where we are in 2017 with data pending and anxious to hear, as you point out, to be reporting out in a year or two, which leads us to our second patient. So here we have then an older gentleman, 74. He's a professional piano player. We want to try and avoid peripheral neuropathy in him. He's very clear about that. He has some mild renal insufficiency, and he also has some coronary artery disease. So he's deemed transplant ineligible. He has IgG kappa myeloma, and he's brand new. So what would you consider options for him for treatment? This brings up uh, the issue of a transplant uh, ineligible patient. Um, he um, has significant uh, comorbidity that, in my mind, would make uh, transplantation have an increased risk. What we would recommend in, in such a gentleman is still triplet induction therapy incorporating novel agents. Lenalidomide, the immunomodulatory drug, can safely be given in the context of neuropathy, as it really does not cause significant neuropathy. It would need to be potentially dose-modified depending on the degree of renal insufficiency. We would uh, recommend including proteasome inhibitors Ortezomib, the first-generation proteasome inhibitor, would be contraindicated because it does have a small but real attendant neuropathy. Um, if, in fact, it's given, however, weekly and subcutaneously, the risk of attendant neuropathy is quite low. In this gentleman, therefore, one could start with lenalidomide and even start with bortezomib, but weekly and um, subcutaneously, with a very um, early and a vigilant uh, follow-up for the earliest signs of neuropathy, so as not to allow it to develop and compromise his career. Alternatively, one could use a proteasome inhibitor that does not have attendant neuropathy, Carlfilzomib or Kyprolis, the second-generation proteasome inhibitor, does not have neuropathy. We need to have caution here because this gentleman has a history of coronary artery disease, and Kyprolis or Carlfilzomib has a very small but real incidence of cardiac toxicity and would need to be used judiciously in this setting. The third proteasome inhibitor, Ixazomib or Ninlaro, is the next generation bortezomib class proteasome inhibitor and it's oral. It has less neuropathy than does bortezomib. So in my view, a very realistic option here would be lenalidomide as the immunomodulatory drug. The second drug would be the proteasome inhibitor, either subcutaneous weekly bortezomib with an early and very close monitoring for emergent neuropathy versus uh, Ninlaro, the oral 
proteasome inhibitor, which again is the next generation in the class of bortezomib, it has uh, much less neuropathy than bortezomib, but does have a small incidence. So therefore, close monitoring for neuropathy would be indicated. My case, therefore, would be RVD with the Velcade weekly or subcutaneously, with the alternative of being lenalidomide, uh, exazomib, dexamethasone for an all-oral regimen. Um, in my view, this 74-year-old gentleman with comorbidity is not a transplant candidate, but I would hasten to add that one could be very optimistic with this gentleman that the likelihood that he could have myeloma as a chronic illness and um, honestly die from something else is quite high. And the reason I say that is that the response to the initial induction triplet therapy would be a very high response extent and frequency. The durability here would be long, especially with lenalidomide maintenance, if it's standard risk myeloma, or lenalidomide and a proteasome inhibitor, probably exazomib in this setting, as if, if he were to have high-risk myeloma. If myeloma relapses, there are many now options that could be utilized in this gentleman and achieve years of progression-free and overall survival. So in someone who is 74 years old, who will respond very well to induction triplet therapy uh, with many years duration of response with continuous lenalidomide or lenalidomide and proteasome inhibitor maintenance. Then the option of, of relapsed therapy with multiple, again, triplet novel agents, his lifespan is unlikely to be shortened by multiple myeloma. Well, that's so incredible. and. Uh, compared to what it was when I trained. And so this last patient is 45 years old, a woman with IgG landomyeloma, and she has had RVD induction. She responded. She had Revlimid maintenance, but then she progressed, <clears throat> and she got her stem cell transplant, and she's progressing after that. So I guess we're looking here to fold in in the upfront and transplant patient now progressing some of the newer, newer agents and how you would fold them into the care of this patient. Yes. I think one of the most remarkable uh, and exciting developments is myeloma are the novel classes of agents that I mentioned earlier, the proteasome inhibitors and the immunomodulatory drugs, the HDAC inhibitor, and the monoclonal antibodies. But they're particularly relevant in a patient such as this whose myeloma has relapsed after what would be considered standard therapy for a young person um, standard risk myeloma. So this 45-year-old woman had RVD, had maintenance therapy, and then progressed. The transplant was given for relapse myeloma. Let me just mention that um, the opportunity to use stem cell transplant in patients when myeloma becomes active after maintenance should not be forgotten. Um, it can be very effective, and in all of the trials done to date, comparing early versus late transplant, 
there has been similar outcome. So that if the transplant isn't done early on, don't forget that it's an option at the time the myeloma progresses. Okay. Um, I do want to mention uh, that there's lots of options for relapse myeloma. I mentioned lenalidomide bortezomib dexamethasone or cytoxan bortezomib dexamethasone as initial triplet therapies. And in North America, those are the two most common regimens utilized. If myeloma then relapses, and we can assume that it is resistant to lenalidomide bortezomib dex or to cytoxan bortezomib dex, then we need to think about what are the alternatives. We need to think about what are the comorbidities in the patient, issues such as age, issues such as neuropathy, um, presence of renal dysfunction, and other clinical factors. We also need to think about what they've had in the past. And this patient has had RVD, maintenance with lenalidomide, and a stem cell transplant. What we then can offer patients are a variety of therapies. But in the context of resistance to the first-generation proteasome inhibitor bortezomib and the first-generation immunomodulatory drug lenalidomide, we would strongly recommend the second-generation immunomodulatory drug pomalidomide be considered together with a second-generation proteasome inhibitor, whether that be carfilzomib or exazomib. In such cases, when one uses the second-generation IMIDs and proteasome inhibitors together, there's a very high uh, frequency of response on the order of 70 to 80 percent, which lasts years. Now, in myeloma, we have carfilzomib, we have um, the exazomib, both of those are proteasome inhibitors, and we also have elituzumab and daratumumab as monoclonal antibodies. All of them have been approved to treat patients like this who have one to three prior therapies for their myeloma. All of them have been approved in randomized phase three trials compared to lenalidomide dexamethasone in the control arm, and they've all been found to be superior. I stress this because although lenalidomide um, Dex combined with daratumumab or exazomib or elituzumab or carfilzomib is superior to lenalidomide in relapse myeloma. The situation in North America and in this patient is usually that patients have had lenalidomide dexamethasone as part of their initial treatment. And so, honestly, their myeloma is refractory to lenalidomide. So, hence, Hence, we recommend uh, that we go to the second-generation pomalidomide and the second-generation um, either carfilzomib or exazomib agents. Having said that, I do think that we are uh, evolving. And what I mean by that is that the, especially the uh, monoclonal antibody daratumumab was initially FDA-approved in multiply relapsed disease as a single agent as it achieves a 30% response rate. It now has been removed into patients like this with the first relapse of their multiple myeloma. 
and it is achieves much higher response rates when combined with lenalidomide and dexamethasone or combined with bortezomib and dexamethasone on the order of 70 to 80 percent, and including minimal residual disease negative complete responses. So I think that today in a patient who's had RVD transplant and myeloma has returned, we would recommend second-generation IMIDs, pomalidomide, and second-generation proteasome inhibitors, either carfilzomib or exazomib. Data for daratumumab, not alone, but combined with lenalidomide DEX or with bortezomib DEX, looks very promising. We need, however, to see more experience of daratumumab together with Lendex or daratumumab together with bortezomib dex in patients whose myeloma is refractory to lenalidomide dex and bortezomib. In other words, patients who have had the RVD induction treatment, daratumumab in combination will be uh, moving earlier and earlier and would be appropriate in the first relapse. I do want to stress for now, however, we saved daratumumab for the second or greater relapse because we know there daratumumab is active and we want to be able to have agents that are active even when relapse occurs um, after the second generation um, IMIDs and proteasome inhibitors. Before we close, a couple practical questions with these antibodies. Um, the daratumumab has, of course, this track record of first treatment quite a day for the patient with side effect. Um, how long are you anticipating the first treatment daratumumab takes? And there's been some talk that maybe splitting it in half and going over two days is easier on the patient in the infusion center. Have you done that? Yeah, no, I think it's, that's a very important point, and we need to be thinking uh, first and foremost, about efficacy of our therapy, but um, equally important is uh, the uh, safety profile and also the user friendliness, if you will, for the patient. Um, I do think that daratumumab infusions uh, are quite long, on the order of eight uh, hours or longer on day one of infusion. All of the clinical trials have been use of daratumumab weekly for eight treatments, and then eight subsequent treatments given every two weeks, and then monthly daratumumab. So there is quite a uh, requirement for in outpatient clinic visits uh, that can be quite prolonged. Uh, one of the opportunities that's being tested is to give um, daratumumab subcutaneously. And while this is in protocols at the present time, um, the results have been reported at our national meetings and look to be quite promising uh, in terms of efficacy that appears to be similar to the intravenous administration, but obviously a much more convenient uh, clinic visit and time for the patients being treated. I should uh, mention to you that the other antibody, elituzumab, uh, uh, has been uh, approved in combination with lenalidomide and dexamethasone. I mention it again here because 
the infusions with lenalidomide, uh, with de uh, DEX and the antibody elituzumab are actually much shorter, uh, on the order of two or three hour visits uh, rather oh, than really? much longer. And um, the place for uh, elituzumab in the management of relapse myeloma is remains to be totally defined. Where we tend to use it now is in the setting of more indolent relapses, uh, where patients might have a slowly rising monoclonal protein, for example. I will add that data from the European Hematology Association uh, this summer 2017 did show that elituzumab lenalidomide dexamethasone actually has maintained a survival, an overall survival advantage compared to lenalidomide dex when used in relapsed myeloma. So uh, we and others are, are quite excited about both antibodies. Daratumumab tends to get most of the activity as it does um, achieve responses as a single agent, and the depth of the responses are markedly increased when it's combined with lenalidomide dex or bortezomib dex. I want to hasten, though, to add that one shouldn't forget elituzumab based on its tolerability and this survival advantage I mentioned at four years. The final point I might make, David, is that um, we think about myeloma genetically at the time of diagnosis and relapse in terms of standard or high-risk disease. And one of the hallmarks of high-risk disease has been 17P deletion yes. um, or P53 uh, uh, dysfunction. One of the exciting developments or outcomes of the development of monoclonal antibodies has been the responses observed to these monoclonal antibody therapies, even in the context of P53 deletion. Clearly, um, antibody-mediated cellular cytotoxicity, complement-mediated cytotoxicity, and other mechanisms of these antibodies do not require normal P53 function. The important point, therefore, is that what has previously been thought of as high-risk disease can nowadays be effectively treated with these new immune treatments correlating with the marked improvement in survival and improvement in overall outcome. Well, Ken, that's just incredible. I want to thank you very much for such a complete and thorough discussion and remind our audience that we've been listening to Dr. Ken Anderson from the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston. and really thank him very much for his thoughts today. And I'm Dr. David Henry with the Journal of Community and Supportive Oncology, where you can visit us online at jcso-online.com. And Ken, thanks so much, and thanks to our audience for listening.